travel creates stories. Unforgettable stories that make us smile, laugh, or even cry. I'm David Calderon, and you're listening to Out of Office, powered by Contiki. This podcast is for people who love to travel. In each episode, we'll be talking about hot topics and intriguing destinations. On today's episode, we're going to discover how young people in Scotland are reviving traditional Scottish music, aka trad. We'll also hear about the bucket list things to do in Asia and what foods to try in Japan after sushi. Let's get into this. It's time for real talk. Now, what's real talk? You might ask. It's all about real conversations with real stories and real experiences. This is where we want to feel inspired and connected. Now we're going to be talking about how young people are breathing new life into traditional Scottish music. Cat from California went on a life-changing trip to experience Scottish culture for herself with Contiki and visit Scotland. She joins me now. How are you, Cat? Hi, I'm good. How are you, David? I'm doing good, doing good. So tell me about your connection to Scotland. I would say that. The first thing that pops in my head is all of the childhood memories、um, of going to the Scottish Games in California. Because my stepdad is half Scottish, and he's very proud of his clan Hamilton heritage that's passed down from his mother's side. And most、mm-hmm. of what I would hear from him、uh, is more focused on the visual cultures. Like growing up, I knew all about the kilt, and he had a book on how to dress properly for any special event, including my sweet sixteen, my graduation. He would wear his full kilt outfit, and that, for one, was really important to me because I knew that, like, his tartan. All of that, like what that means, lesser on the music, and that. So this trip、mm-hmm. was. More of like me discovering the other sides of the culture. When did you get your first taste of Scottish trad music on this trip? My first taste was going to the pub on the first day. Yeah, that was it. The first day in Edinburgh, we went to a pub in the afternoon, and it was really small and intimate, and it was just filled with people. You walk in, there's like a stairway down, but generally, it's just the one room. And a few tables. There was nowhere to sit, so everybody was crowded and looking into the corner where there were five or six young musicians. They were already jamming, and I think it lasted like an hour or so. So、um, during that time, I was sketching them all. I remember that. For me, right now, I'm envisioning just like a pub full of people and just like music randomly coming from like everywhere. So like people are just like like hanging out in this pub, just having like a pint, drinking some wine. And- yeah, they were and. They also—it's not like a thing where they rehearse or anything because they all know a lot of these tunes by heart. So they, they would whisper to each other and just like, "Oh, like, what do you want to do now?" And then one would start on the guitar or something, and they would all just chime in. So it was a very spontaneous and electric atmosphere in there. How how did it make you feel? Like, what emotions were you feeling? And like, how was the vibe in the pub? The vibe was very moving because. Even though I didn't know these tunes by heart, and it doesn't remind me of any specific like childhood memories, it is still like evident to anybody that it carries so much, so much meaning in it. It's almost not even about the specific culture and and the folklore that is behind the certain songs. It is just about、um, the history of like how the music brings people together. We're just like together in that moment. So that was just a a, a wonderful environment to be in. 
now that we're talking like trad music, let's bring in Rui Graham. Now, Rui is a young Scottish trad musician who plays the drums in a band called Night Works, which fuses Gaelic Scottish sounds with electronic music. Is that right? Uh, that's correct, David. Aye. Yeah. So, as someone who's never been to Scotland, how would you describe Scottish trad music to someone who knows nothing about it, since you obviously play it? Well, I, I, I think, I mean, it's such a big question that, but I think fundamentally speaking, trad music is really kind of an expression of Scottish culture. I think Cat was saying it pretty well there. It's like there seems to be an energy in the room whenever there's a kind of a session going on. It's a very informal type of music. So you, you would get what's called generally a session and they, they take place more often than not in the pub. So More often than not. <laughs> far more often, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's basically like, it's like a, a gathering, I suppose. It's like a jam. But as Kat was saying, you know, like the songs, some of the tunes have been played for hundreds of years. Some of the songs as well have been sung for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing to see quite a re- re-emergence really in the trad music scene because it's such a window into kind of current Scottish culture, but also into like the past and Scotland's history as well. There's no technical song that you play. Like you say, it's a, just a jam session. So like someone would just like start playing like the bagpipe and just like start playing like an old melody that everyone just knows, like describe it a little bit more. Well, yeah, I mean, there's thousands of what you would say tunes, right? So uh, there are tunes that have been written by somebody at some point in time. So gen- generally, if you have a session, like somebody will rock into a kind of like a, a commonly known tune yeah. um, so that everybody can kind of join in. And, and then by going to sessions, sometimes you'll learn new tunes. Quite a lot of trad music is taught by ear rather than by sheet music. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you have to, as a trad musician, you have to really train your ear. See, I, I learn pretty much all my instruments mostly by ear. Um, I can hardly even re- read uh, sheet music, you know? You're one of those naturally talented musicians. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, generally, the, you, you would play a tune maybe three or four times around. On the first time, you'd kind of listen to it, and then the second time, you would maybe try little phrases. And then by the third time, you're kind of starting to scratch around and pick it up. And via that process, I'm going to the pub <laughs> very often. You kind of pick up these songs, and it becomes like a corpus. It's a lot of communication going on between all the musicians there, and it's just good crack, you know, it's good fun. So you said you you learned by listening by ear. So did you just learn with, like with your family as well? Does is does it something that you just picked up by yourself? You're like I want to learn trad music, and you started going just listening to it. Yeah, for sure. Well, for me, like I I come from a, a wee island off the north west coast of Scotland called the Isle of Skye. Um, so trad music is and Gaelic music uh, in particular is is um, part of the culture and part of growing up there. My mum's uh, like a Gaelic singing teacher. So she would go around all the primary schools teaching all the old songs in Gaelic. Oh, wow. um, all my brothers and sisters, we, we all play an instrument. So literally like part of growing up was, you know, sitting around the piano and like you'd be playing some tunes or you'd be singing some songs. Now in Scotland, are there different types of Scottish trad music or is it all the same? Does it sound different from different places? Oh yeah, for sure. There's there's different styles of trad music wherever you go. So on the West Coast, where I'm from, there tends to be the type of trad music that you play is very fast and very like there's a lot of drive behind it so you would play lots of types of tunes that you would call reels 
and they're in four mm-hmm. four four. Uh, that's great for like what we would call a Kaylee, which is a traditional dance event basically. And then there's associated dances that everybody in Scotland knows. On the west coast, they're pretty wild. So there's lots of... Uh, <laughs> so that's where I want to go, essentially, is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm a bit biased in that respect, but West Coast is, uh, is pretty good fun. There's a lot of swinging people around and all that kind of stuff. And then it's really interesting because you get really different styles. If you go up to the Northern Isles, like Orkney and Shetland, you've got a different style of trad music that's kind of very connected to kind of Scandinavia as well because they are uh, culturally very connected to Scandinavia. In the east coast of Scotland, it's uh, their playing is a bit more, bit more reserved, but a bit more kind of bouncy in their playing. Rather than so reserved as in like they don't get up to dance or is it just oh, more mellow dancing? Oh no, yeah, a bit more mellow dancing, a bit more mellow dancing, a bit more kind of conservative dancing than throwing somebody out of a window. <laughs> <laughs> Still want to go to the west. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, um, Kat. So when you were in Scotland, when you were listening to trad music, uh, out of those types of mu- um, versions of trad music, which ones did you think you were listening to? If I had to guess, it was the faster ones with more drive. Everyone was just enthralled in it, and the players themselves, like their eyes were closed, and they were bouncing up and down on the chairs, their feet uh, or their knees were just like coming up and down, pounding the wood floors in the same rhythm. So I want to say that it really evokes the first one, yeah. The players themselves, like because they didn't need the sheet music and they just knew it, um, like the fiddle player was just playing with his eyes closed, which is amazing. Uh, And then everyone else, we were just clapping. Unfortunately, there wasn't room for me to dance, so everyone was just standing and crowding around a big table. Oh, that's good. You didn't get thrown out a window, so that's still still a plus. (laughs) No. (laughs) So, Roy, we'd really like to hear a track from Nightworks. So what is one of the tracks that you would want to play for us? What I'd suggest to play is um, from our latest album called Id Far and Wah. Actually, it translates at At the Dawn of the Day. All right, perfect. Let's hear it. We're now going to hear from Archie McFarlane, a trad musician who grew up with traditional Scottish music before its revival by young people today. Welcome to the podcast, Archie. Hello. Uh, so how long have you been playing trad music for? Oh, since I was uh, ooh, about 11, I think. We're talking about how young people have revived trad music today. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on how they're experimenting with other genres of the music and fusing them with trad? Yeah, I think uh, there's, there's a bit of that going on at the moment. Uh, I guess they're kind of pushing things forward by introducing other influences or whatever. Uh, but I think trad music generally, it's not the static thing. It hasn't just stayed the same for years and years. It's always evolving, so, you know, at the moment there is, I guess there's more access to other music perhaps or other influences, so young people mm-hmm. are taking some of that and, you know, infusing it into their, into their trad music playing. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know, people infuse things together and they sound terrible, uh, yeah. in, in which case, you know, it doesn't survive, no one listens to it, so, you know, that's, so the good stuff, when that does happen and it happens well, that's when it sort of works and people listen to it and it, and it survives and it gets taken on as something. Far, 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 far
with trad music, it's very personal. So all these young people are taking it and kind of adding a part of themselves to their own music, and that becomes, you know, these fusions that are happening right now. Aha. Uh-huh. I mean, and, and also as well, like uh, traditional music, you know, if you hear a tune played in, say, Aberdeen, it's going to be maybe a bit different if you hear it played in Glasgow, or, or one person will play it slightly different to another person. Uh, it's not like a kind of, say, with a classical music, you know, you read the music dots and that's it. It's kind of, it's got that structure that you have to stick to. Trad doesn't really have that. It's got the tune, but you can kind of make it your own. You can change bits if you like. It's very fluid in that sense. How important is Scottish trad music to the Scottish national identity? I'd say I'd say it's it's really really important. It, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, trad music has been going for, as I said, like hundreds of years, basically. So it is uh, a window into our past for a lot of people. Like a lot of the songs and tunes were written so long ago that, especially some of the songs, you know, some of the, some of the the lyrics and that speak of a time where uh, where we just don't have that time anymore. So it's kind of like a, a very strong connection with Scottish roots. There, there was a period of time where it became, I hasten to use the word like unpopular, but it wasn't really, a lot of people were kind of not taking it up. Up until like the 70s or 80s, it was mostly kind of like old guys in the pubs, you know, scratching away in a fiddle and maybe one or two. But mm-hmm. a really interesting thing has happened since like the 70s or 80s when bands started taking like trad music and, and mixing it up with other styles. So that's really begun a, a massive resurgence in, in popularity, particularly amongst like young people. It's kind of latched on to this new kind of young generation of, of Scottish people that want to identify with the country that they are part of. And it, it, it's a great way to do that. I, th- I, I think of it as just like, it's music of the people, for the people and by the people, if, if you want to put it like that. And, and that's because it's, it's so welcoming to anybody can pick up a fiddle and, and join a session, you know, and like be part of that kind of music, which is the Scottish roots music and kind of what makes Scotland Scotland. Well, it's what Scotland sounds like. Kat, when you were in the pub, when you were listening to the Scottish trad music, was there, could you see kind of like the different generations of, in age of people playing the music? Was it, or was it all just young people? Was it just older people? It was definitely was it a, a mix? mix. And specifically, one of the nights, there were three generations. There was one particularly old man who was just like the most amazing fiddle player. He was the one who was like in that trans during that one song. Um, and everybody was watching him at one point because... What was nice is that you can tell that for some of the tunes, although they they all knew many by heart, there, there are a few where only the older generations knew how to play the entirety of it. So for like a stretch of time, it was just him and one other person playing and going back and forth, going back and forth. And it was, it was like an extremely fast-paced song as well. It kind of circles back into this main chorus where everybody joined in again and the young boy was sitting next to that older man. And I think it was just really moving for me to see across all generations um, them playing. And like a thought that crossed my head was just like, you know, that 
old man was once that young boy, you know, picking up this tradition. And one day that boy is going to be that older man. And it's just, even though I can't say that I'm culturally tied to that, um, I, I loved being in that moment. I can experience the value of it. It feels amazing, you know, because it is a personal thing to me and uh, and to the other band members as well, that you get to take your kind of cultural identity and what you grew up with and package it into something kind of new and put it on stage. And um, it really seems to appeal to people. And you get to play trad music and Gaelic music to to audiences who otherwise wouldn't have come into contact with it. Thank you so much to our guests, Ruri, Kat, and Archie, for telling us all about the rebirth of Scottish trad. Next, here's the part of the podcast we're calling Travel Porn. Some travel experiences are superior to others. If you're looking for that next spot to brag about on the gram, or you're into the weird, the wonderful, and unique, Travel Porn has got you covered. Get ready to have that feeling of wanderlust wash all over you because travel blogger Dave Anderson, a.k.a. Jones Around the World, is here to cover all things you need to do in Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So you've traveled a lot in Asia. When did you first make your trip over there? Um, so my first trip to Southeast Asia was in 2000, I think, 13. Um, okay. Just hopped on a one-way ticket to Bangkok and just kind of fell in love with Southeast Asia and backpacking and long-term travel. All right. So we know Asia is really vast and there's so much to do and see in that part of the world. Can you tell me about five things to do in Asia? So for the first one, I would say let's hang out on the ocean swing in uh, Gili Trawangan in Bali. Or I guess it's off the coast of Lombok in Indonesia. But I actually stayed on the Gili Islands for a couple months. I worked at a backpacker hostel just like working in the nightlife industry on Gili Islands mm -hmm. or on, on Gili Tea. And there's this really famous Instagram swing that is just it's such a cool place. And you'll get is it some just really a big swing. Well, it's, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's basically like a swing with two swings next to each other. So you go out there and you have like two friends standing up in the water. Mm -hmm. So it's like out in the ocean, but it's also where the sun is setting as well. So you get these really colorful and bright pink sunsets and, oh, wow. um, yeah. And then, I mean, you can also go out there during the day, of course, but for me, it's like the best during sunset and you get these awesome colors. The whole island of Gili, the Gili Islands are just beautiful. Mm -hmm. That um, It's one of my favorite places for sure in Southeast Asia. Definite photo up. Definite photo yeah. up. All right. What would be your second one? For my second one, I would say um, riding the tram up to Victoria Peak in Hong Kong and just exploring that whole area. You get some really stunning views of the entire city and the skyline in Hong Kong is one of the most insane skylines in the world, I'd say. Like there's... Especially being up there at night when you can just see the city come alive. Like Hong Kong really is one of the most vibrant places I've been. Yeah, I know. I've seen so many photos. I've never been, but I it's it's on the on the list of places to go. Yeah. Oh, it's it's incredible. I was actually there back in I think it was October. So I guess it was a bit ago, but I took the tram up there and I spent hours just kind of walking around different trails that they have mm -hmm. and just soaking it up. All right. And what would be your number three? For number three, I'd say walking the bridges and exploring gardens by the bay in Singapore. Oh, that's the that's where all the like the it's like the purple towers, right? Yeah, it has that like avatar kind of vibe. To yes, it. avatar. That's that's the best way to describe it. 
Yeah, it's super cool. And um, I actually, it's crazy. On my way to Hong Kong back in October, I had a 10-hour layover in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So I actually left the airport, hopped on um, the tram to uh, to Gardens by the Bay and just walked around and took the elevator up to the bridges. And it's just such a cool thing to do. And um, yeah, like even like during the day and at night, it's just such an awesome activity and it kind of is it's just a great way of looking at singapore too because it's it's futuristic and beautiful and everyone's super nice and yeah i i love singapore all right what would be your fourth let's say go surfing in sri lanka i'm completely obsessed with sri lanka i've been there three different times now it is one of my favorite places for food in the world oh is it that good yeah the sri lankan food and cuisine is like it's it's next level every time i go there i gain a few pounds because all the like food (laughs) The food is, it's so good. Um, and then you have a little bit of everything in Sri Lanka, but one of my favorite places is Aragon Bay. And that's like one of the, it's like the surfing hotspot in the country. And it's one of the first places I went surfing and there's also like really cool beach parties. And yeah, I would just say, if you're going to go to Asia, check out Sri Lanka and go surfing. How's the water for all our surfers out there? It's warm and the waves are good. It's nice, comfortable, warm water. And then they have some really good breaks at all their different surf spots. And what would be your final thing to do in Asia? I know like five is such a small number, but it's we know there's no way we can put it all in one big list. For number five, I'll go with swimming in an infinity pool in Kuala Lumpur. I'm a big fan of KL. I think it's one of the most underrated cities in Southeast Asia. I would always stay with friends at this one that's like really popular called Regalia. But now they're popping up all over the place. Um, But there's amazing infinity pools in Kuala Lumpur. And um, you get really awesome views of the, you know, Patronus Towers. And it's just such an awesome feeling to be like that high up. You know, you're on like the 37th to 40th floor, swim in, and you can just look out over an entire city. Yeah, views for days. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dave. You have been amazing. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been really fun. All right. So this is the part of the podcast that might make you a little bit hungry. You have been warned. Munch is all about the food porn, the foodie destinations, and the best of where to eat around the world. Get ready for your mouth to water, because mine definitely is. I'm about to speak to Eric Sward from the Japan Center, who will tell us some weird and wonderful foods we need to try in Japan after sushi. Now, Eric, what are the top foods to try after eating sushi in Japan? Because I was in Japan last May and I was there for three weeks. I kind of went and traveled as much as I could and I ate sushi every day. The number one on my list that I would say is to actually, as weird as it sounds, is non-Japanese foods. So Western foods in Japan, Indian food and Chinese and even Italian food. I've heard that KFC is a big thing in Japan. Is that true? Yes. Throughout most of the year, it's probably the same as any other fried chicken place. But during Christmas in particular, Japanese don't eat turkey for Christmas. They eat chicken. What you actually have to do is you have to pre-order your dinner sets or your fried chicken bucket. I know that sounds a little strange that you have to pre-order KFC, but you do. (laughs) The demand is very high during that year. And then you get your meal, your chicken, and then you would also get a Christmas cake as well. Japanese Christmas cake is a little bit different. Um, It's basically a sponge cake with whipped cream and strawberries. I would not have known that. What would be the next food to try on the list? Anything that ends in yaki or has yaki in its name. Yaki basically means grilled or cooked. I'm sure a lot of people are at least aware of something that has it in there. Probably like teriyaki chicken. I actually have some teriyaki chicken right here in the office that we're going to give a go while 
while you continue talking about some yaki. So teriyaki chicken, yakisoba, which probably most people are familiar with, fried stir-fried noodles. And then another variant of that is yaki udon, which is a little bit thicker noodles. The other main ones would be okonomiyaki, which is a savory pancake of sort. They tend to use cabbage as the base, mix it with egg and batter, and then they top it with basically whatever you like. You would have it with bacon or pork belly is the main thing that they top it with. So everything with yaki. <laughs> if it has yeah. yaki, you have to try it. Yeah, and then the other more well-known is a takoyaki, which is octopus balls. I have a little nice takoyaki right here in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I see all the flakes and everything like that. So what's all in it again? No, normally taco refers to octopus. So you're going to put little bits of octopus in there, grill them up, and then cut them with a special Japanese brown sauce. Then with Japanese mayonnaise, top it with ginger fish flakes, and seaweed powder. Now, what's really funny is like just eating it right now, it actually is really, really good. Mm-hmm. I'm not the biggest brancher into seafood territory. Like I would have calamari, but I mm-hmm. wouldn't really taste it because I would just dip in lots of sauce. Mm-hmm. But this, I don't taste the octopus at all. I definitely taste the mustard. Mm-hmm. It has a very nice soft texture. It's not, I, it's not like crispy or anything. It's actually really good though. Like I, I have six of them and I'm probably going to eat them all. <laughs> That's good, yes. One of the things that I realized when I went to Japan is because... The person who I went to with was vegetarian, and mm-hmm. he had a lot of trouble actually trying to be vegetarian in Japan. What? And as we actually went through kind of this list, there is a lot of kind of like meat-centric yes. foods. Mm-hmm. What would be kind of like an option for someone who wanted to go to Japan and was like, but I don't eat meat? Well, I do sympathize. Unfortunately, uh, the Japanese concept of meat is very varied and meat in most traditional Japanese cooking, takes only the role of flavoring. But my pick would be tempura kakiyage. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just uh, thinly sliced vegetables like onions and carrots, sort of scrambled up into very thin threads and kind of like makes a nest. They dip it into the batter and they deep fry it. If anybody's familiar with onion rings, that would be a similar taste to that. But not so bad because it's a carrot and vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Eric. It's really good to hear this because I actually do want to get to Japan again. Mm-hmm. So I think there's plenty more foods out there to try. Plenty more yakis out there to taste. Yes, there sure are. That's it for this episode of Out of Office, powered by Contiki. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. I'm going to be catching up with legendary explorer and environmental activist Celine Cousteau on how we can make travel matter by traveling more sustainably. That's it for me, David Calderon. I'll see you soon.